If you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. This morning we will finish our consideration of the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of the Lord's Supper. And we'll do so by primarily considering... Paul's instruction, uh, admonition that he gives to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, May he write this word upon our hearts. Well, please turn with me in your order of worship to... The confessional reading element this morning, we are confessing our faith using the words of Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 30. This Lord's Day consists of a question and answers 80 through 82. Now, we won't be spending much time on question answer 80. Question answer 80 is explaining the differences between the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. We already touched on Uh, Many of those differences last week when we were uh, looking at how Christ is present in the supper. So we're going to be primarily focusing on these last two questions of this Lord's Day. 
As always, I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. So question 80 asks, how does the Lord's Supper differ, differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Question 81 asks, Who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Question 82 asks, Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Well, boys and girls, uh, which of the, the main sections of this catechism are we considering? And Elise? Grace. Very good. Uh, what is the definition of true faith? Isaiah? Good, yes. That's the, the content of faith. Um, what's the, uh, what are the, the three? The th Noel? Knowledge, and trust. So those are the three uh, marks of true faith. And then, as Isaiah said, the content of this faith is the Apostles' Creed, the creed that we recited earlier uh, this morning. Those are those things that we need to know, assent to, and put our trust in. Now, what is the benefit that we receive when we profess this true faith? Yeah? Righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ. Christ's righteousness. Very good. And where does this faith come from? the preaching of the word, and uh, which member of the Trinity gives us faith through the preaching of the word? Yeah? The Holy Spirit. Very good. Uh, how many sacraments are there? Micah? Two, yes. Yes. Uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and Lord's Supper. So the last few weeks we've been looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper and uh, today we'll finish our consideration of the Lord's Supper. 
Now, you'll remember that uh, last, the last two weeks, we've been, we've been thinking about what, what goes on in the Lord's Supper. What's happening? And even more specifically, we've been, we've been considering how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Last week, I went through the, the various views that were present during the Reformation. And we, consider, we concluded that the catechism and scripture, uh, Scripture's view of this subject is that Christ is not present in the bread and the wine. Rather, Christ is present in the supper. Notice the distinction. Christ is not present in the bread and the wine, but Christ is very much present in the supper at this meal. Boys and girls, I would imagine that you ate dinner last night with your family, and I also would assume that your parents were probably there, maybe your siblings were there. Now, when you ate dinner, did your parents and siblings become the food on your plate? I don't think so. Uh, but they were still present at the meal with you when you were eating your food. Well, in the same way, when we come to the table of the Lord, Christ is not transformed into the bread and the wine, but Christ really is present when we eat ordinary bread and drink this ordinary wine. And the way in which Christ is present is by the Holy Spirit. And that's why we refer to this view of the, the catechism as the spiritual view, capital S, spiritual view of the Lord's Supper, because it's the Holy Spirit who unites us who are on earth with Christ who is in heaven during this meal. Well, now the catechism uh, addresses a very important question. Uh, who should come to the Lord's table? Who should partake of the, of the Lord's table? One of the, the, the benefits of utilizing a catechism within the, the life of the church is that uh, the cat, this catechism does a great job of distilling some of those main doctrines that we need to, to know, that we need to understand, uh, that we need to be familiar with. And oftentimes, many problems occur within the church when we are ignorant of some of these basics of the Christian faith. And so... Uh, the, the catechism is asking a very relevant and important question. Who should come to the Lord's table? And as we consider this, we'll also see implicitly an answer to the question of how should we come to the Lord's table? How do we prepare ourselves to come to this table of the Lord? And essentially, there are three views or three answers that are, that is, that, that are given to this question. Uh, there are some churches that hold to what's called an open view of communion. And this would essentially put all the responsibility upon the individual. Uh, this would be the view of, of your average kind of evangelical megachurch, where the supper is sort of an open banquet. And there might be um, some admonition by uh, the pastor that this is for those who believe, but there's no vetting of that profession of faith. The, the responsibility is completely upon the individual to worthily partake. But at the end of the day, there are lots of people who, quote-unquote, believe in Jesus that we wouldn't deem to be a credible profession of faith. Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, um, even Mormons could say that they believe in Jesus to some extent. And so there's the, 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 the responsi responsibility is placed solely upon the individual. On the other end of the spectrum is what's called closed communion. This would be the view of, of the Roman Catholic Church, um, Eastern Orthodox churches, as well as uh, Lutheran congregations, or the, uh, Lutheran denominations. And this would essentially say that uh, the, the church has responsibility 
God-given authority and responsibility to oversee and supervise the supper and the table. And these denominations would restrict the Lord's Supper to members, formal members of their denomination. And the rationale for this is that they recognize in Scripture that, that, that uh, the Lord's Supper is a communion not only with the historical body of Christ, but also the ecclesial body of Christ, the church. And they recognize that communion with the ecclesial body of Christ is all about celebrating the unity that we have both in doctrine and in life. And so they have trouble being able to come to the table with those with whom they have, have pretty profound doctrinal differences with, and that's why they restrict it to members of, of their own denomination. Well, the view that's put forward here in this catechism uh, kind of cuts through the middle here. It's, if those are the two ditches, uh, the view of the catechism is, is the middle of the road. And the view that the catechism puts forward, and we'll I'll argue the view that Scripture puts forward, is what could be called a guarded view of, of the Lord's table. And there's essentially three, uh, three things that Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11 and our catechism identifies as, as needed requirements to properly come to the Lord's table. Uh, the first requirement that we see is that uh, we need to profess faith through the paradigm of guilt, grace, gratitude. So if you look with me at question answer 81, what are the requirements that question answer 81 uh, gives us in terms of, of what, is, what, what we need to do in order to come to the table? What are some of the things that it, it, points, it points out for us? Yes, recognize our sins. We need to be displeased uh, with our sins. <laughs> You'll notice then the second thing is we need to trust that these sins are pardoned. Trust that these sins are pardoned. And third, we need to have a desire to lead a godly life. Desire to strengthen our faith. This is guilt, grace, gratitude. Displeased with our sin trust that these sins are pardoned, that's the grace section, and desire to lead a godly life, that's the gratitude section. So we need to be displeased with our sin, we need to trust that these sins are pardoned, and we need to desire to lead a, a godly life. And so boys and girls, the three main requirements for coming to the Lord's table, uh, for making a profession of faith, is a recognition of guilt, grace, gratitude. But it's not just merely being able to recite a catechism question and answer. It's, it's, it's feeling the conviction of sin. It's having sorrow over your sin. Notice how the catechism doesn't just say you need to know that you're a sinner. You need to feel displeased with your sin. That gets at the heart. We need to have that conviction that comes when we transgress God's law. And notice... Uh, of all the three marks of true faith, the catechism here is focusing on the trust element. That we need to trust personally that these sins are really taken away through the work of Christ. And then lastly, we need to have a desire. A desire to actually lead a godly life. Now, we won't be perfect in this life. We will continue to sin in this life. But we have to have a desire, a God-given desire 
to live as God calls us to live. We need to have familiarity with God's law, his Ten Commandments. Uh, and so guilt, grace, gratitude, that, that's, that's what structures this, this profession of faith that the catechism puts forward. And furthermore, uh, boys and girls, when you, Lord willing, come to before the elders to profess your faith, these are the three elements that we are looking for. A recognition of one's sin, a trust in Christ, and a desire to lead a godly life. And for all of us, how do we prepare for the Lord's Supper? On Lord's Supper Sundays, how do we prepare our hearts to come in a worthy manner and eat of this bread and drink of this wine? In one sense, the service itself is our preparation. You'll notice that we, we partake of the Lord's Supper towards the end of the service. After we hear the reading of the law, which is meant to convict us of our sin. After we hear this declaration of pardon, which is meant to assure us that we are forgiven of our sins and are given the motivation to then obey the law of God as redeemed image bearers. After we hear the sermon, which many times includes all three of these, these elements of guilt, grace, and gratitude. So the service is... In, in, in one sense, the greatest preparation we can have to come to the Lord's Supper. Well, where do we see this in, in Scripture? Well, if you look with me at 1 Corinthians 11, 11 verse 28, the Apostle Paul says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So when, the, when Paul says, let a person examine himself, he's essentially saying, let him examine himself in these three areas. Do you have a holy displeasure for your sin? Do you have a hearty trust in Christ that your sins are taken away? And do you have a God-given desire to lead a godly life? This is, a, this is what Paul's saying when he says, let a person examine himself. So the first element or requirement of coming to the Lord's table is a profession of faith through the paradigm of guilt, grace, gratitude. The second requirement that we see here, both in our catechism and in scripture, is that we need to profess that the supper is God's playing field. So again, I've been using this illustration throughout our consideration of, of the sacraments. And what's, what's my point when I say that the sacraments are God's playing field? God is the doer, right? We arrive at the Lord's Supper as fans, spectators, to witness God on his playing field, assuring us and strengthening our faith. And so if you look with me at question answer 81, the catechism says that a worthy partaker needs to desire to strengthen one's faith at the table. We need to have a desire to strengthen our faith at the table, which is essentially a recognition that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. The Lord's Supper is God's playing field. It's not our service to God, it's God's service to us, and therefore we, we are to desire God's um, grace in this meal and in this moment. Now, we don't, of course, require the passing of a, a theology exam, and, and, and everyone, one doesn't need to know all the ins and outs of the Lord's Supper. But at bottom, 
what, what's required here is that we need to recognize that this meal is a holy meal. There's something categorically different when we celebrate the Lord's Supper on Sundays during a stated service than Sunday lunch at home, than Monday night dinner. One's a holy meal where Christ promises to be present. One's a common meal where we don't have a special promise that Christ will be present. That's really what we need to recognize. And boys and girls, you need to recognize that this is a holy meal. It's in a league of its own. When, you, uh, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper on Sundays, this meal is, is categorically different than any other meal you will have during the week. This is a holy meal where Christ promises to be present by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is what the Corinthian church was struggling with in, in context. They were treating this holy meal as a common meal. They were treating this meal as just an ordinary Tuesday night Greco-Roman feast. The rich had the, a seat at the table, and the poor were relegated to the atrium or the corridors and only had scraps from the table. There would have been really no difference between what the Corinthians were doing as they celebrated the Lord's Supper and what pagans did on a Tuesday night as they feasted. They were treating this holy meal as a common meal. They didn't recognize that this is a meal in a league of its own. And so we need to recognize that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. That the Lord's Supper is God's playing field to strengthen our faith. Now again, where do we see that here in Scripture? Well, we see that in uh, verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 11. So if you look with me at 1 Corinthians 11 verse 29, Paul continues after he says we are to examine ourselves. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we are called to discern the body. And what body is Paul referring to? Well, if you look just two verses earlier in verse 27, Paul there refers to the body and blood of Jesus, which is a reference to his humanity. And so in verse 29, when Paul says discern the body, his primary meaning is we need to discern Christ's presence in the supper. We need to discern that the supper is a holy meal that's given to us to strengthen our faith. So the second main requirement for worthily partaking in the Lord's Supper is a recognition that the supper is God's playing field. We need to discern the body. This is a holy meal. It's a holy feast. Well, the third requirement that we see both in this Lord's Day as well as in Scripture is that we need to be admitted to this supper by elders of a local church. Now, this is the more controversial issue uh, in some regards, but we see this implicitly taught in question, question answer 82. Notice how it asks, can those also be admitted who show themselves um, by what they profess or how they live, that they are unbelieving and ungodly. And the answer goes on to say that, no, the Christian church, through her office bearers, elders, pastors, are duty-bound to exclude such people through official use of the keys of the kingdom. So this implies and teaches that elders are given authority, consistories are given authority to admit some and exclude others, meaning Elders have the authority to supervise and oversee the Lord's table. 
Now, where do we see this in Scripture? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So Paul is saying that he as an apostle, and by extension, ordinary pastors and elders, are, are stewards. Stewards. Now, stewards in the Greco-Roman world were employed by owners of estates to manage the owner's wealth, property, servants, slaves. They had a great responsibility. And Paul, and Paul here is saying that he is an apostle, and ordinary pastors and elders are stewards in the church of God. And notice specifically what they are stewarding. They are stewarding the mysteries of God. Listen to how, uh, what John Calvin says as he comments on these two verses. He says, It is an honorable distinction that Paul confirms upon the gospel when he terms its contents the mysteries of God. So Calvin in terms this, this phrase, mysteries of God, as a reference to the gospel, the word. But as the sacraments are connected with these mysteries as appendages, it follows that those who have the charge of administering the word are the authorized stewards of them also. So the mysteries of God refer not only to the verbal gospel, but also the visible gospel. The mysteries of God refer to the word and the sacraments, and thus Paul is saying that he as an apostle and by extension elders and pastors are stewards of the word and the sacraments. God has placed them over the Lord's table in order to supervise and oversee its administration. How do they steward this table? Well, uh, elders, consistories are to ensure as much as possible that those who come have professed their faith through this paradigm of guilt, grace, gratitude, and acknowledge that this meal is a holy meal. And this is what we see going on in 1 Corinthians 11. So if you look with me at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 through 19, Paul says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul is speaking about these divisions that are going on in the church, but he's saying that one of the results is that the genuine are coming to the surface. And this word for genuine that Paul uses literally refers to uh, being genuine on the basis of testing or being approved by a test. So the question that comes to mind, well, who's doing the approving? Who's doing the testing? Well, the elders of the Corinthian church are doing the approving and doing the, the testing. This is why the practice of Reformed churches have been, you know, since the Reformation, to first be examined by the elders and then to publicly profess one's faith uh, before the presence of many witnesses. This is why youth, when they come to make a profession of faith, they first have an interview with the elders. Elders have the job of approving and testing and vetting professions of faith. And that's what Paul is teaching here when he's talking about the genuine ones 
of the church in Corinth. And professing one's faith is not an individualistic enterprise. Jesus says that we are to be people who confess our faith before men. It's a public and communal event. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that we are called to make the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is why we, we receive members publicly as I read these commitments, these uh, promises, and we hear them give their affirmation of these uh, commitments. And so if we bring it back to those views that I introduced you to at the beginning, we would differ from those churches who, who have an open view of communion in that we actually believe that elders have God-given authority to oversee and supervise the Lord's table. There, yes, is responsibility upon the individual. Uh, consistories can't read hearts, nor should we try to read hearts. And so there's always responsibility upon the individual to come in a worthy manner, but we have to realize that God has employed stewards in his church to oversee the word and the sacraments. And we would differ from those churches who, uh, who, who, who have a closed view of communion because uh, we recognize that this table is not just for members of our denomination. It's for all those who profess faith through this paradigm of guilt, grace, gratitude. It's all those who acknowledge that this meal is a holy meal. And it's all those who've been admitted to this supper by a local church through church membership. And that's why we welcome visitors to come to this table, even visitors who aren't from URC congregations, who are from other true churches, not even necessarily Reformed churches. If they've publicly professed their faith and have been admitted by other elders of a local church uh, via church membership. And so we see uh, th this really is what, what, what we mean when we talk about guarded communion, that there are requirements that that uh, scripture gives us to worthily partake of this holy meal and feast. Well, I also like to briefly touch on uh, what's, what's called paedo-communion. So there are some who, who believe that we not only should baptize babies, but we also should give communion to infants or very young children before they're able to make a profession of faith. And usually, paedo-communion interpreters will say that, you know, just as when we read in Acts of, of this paradigm of repentance preceding baptism, we recognize that that's not a universal rule. That only applies to pagan adults who are converting to Christianity. That when it comes to children of believers, children of believers operate under a different principle. They should be baptized before they repent because of their inclusion in the covenant community through the faith of their parents. And so they would say that what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 11 is essentially what Luke is doing in many of those occasions in the book of Acts when we see repentance preceding baptism. Paul here is not trying to lay down a universal rule that applies to all people, but rather he's just seeking to address a very specific issue in the context of the Corinthian church and really isn't addressing the issue of infants coming to the Lord's table at all. And we need to look to other scripture passages to address that question. So that's, that's sort of the argument that is put forward. And that argument is really wrong-headed because of a, it, it assumes a really a wrong understanding of 1 Corinthians 11. 
So if you look with me at 1 Corinthians 11 again, you'll notice that in verses 17 through 22 and verses 30 through 34, Paul uses the second person pronoun. He's specifically addressing the Corinthian context. But in verses 27 through 29, Paul very intentionally changes his use of the pronoun. He uses a third person pronoun, which makes what he's saying sound very general, very universal, as if he's stepping outside of the specific contextual issues of the Corinthian church and seeking to lay down a universal rule that applies to all people who desire to come to the Lord's table. And you'll notice that in verses 27 through 29, Paul is giving us those requirements of examination. We have to examine ourselves. Do, are we displeased with our sins? Do we trust in Christ? Do we desire to lead a godly life? It's in verses 27 through 29 that Paul says we are to discern the body. We are to recognize that this meal is a holy meal. And so, based on, on this reading of 1 Corinthians 11, we see that, that what Paul says here is not just relegated to a very specific issue in the Corinthian church. He is laying down a universal rule that applies, yes, to adults, but also to children. We are called to, to, to make a proper examination of ourselves, to make a proper discernment of this meal, which necessitates a certain age of maturity and discernment to be able to do this. One way I like to think about this is, is um, I grew up uh, hunting, deer hunting in the Midwest, and my grandma lived lives and still lives on, on a few hundred acres of, 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 of land, wooded land on, on a river. And so it was prime hunting land. And every fall, my extended family, my uncles, cousins would gather and we would go deer hunting. And I would go, I'd participate in this hunting party for many years before I was old enough to carry a gun, before I was old enough to pass hunter safety. And I would go out to the stand with my dad. I'd, I'd, he'd show me how to you know, load the gun, how to put on the safety. He would, uh, I would help him when he shot the deer. I would help him uh, gut out the deer. I would help the, my cousins, my uncles cut up the deer when we were done hunting. I participated in the hunting party. I didn't feel like I was um, you know, a second-class participant because I wasn't old enough. I was a part of things. I was out there with my dad. I was helping cutting up the meat and, and gutting out the deer. But then once I was old enough and I passed hunter safety, I, I had a gun. I was able to go to the stand by myself and hunt by myself. It was a great privilege, but also a great responsibility, but it required a certain level of maturity. Well, that's sort of how we should think of children in the Lord's Supper. Uh, children are not second-class citizens of the church. They are covenant children. They're members of God's church. They're members of God's people. Uh, they're baptized because of that. However, we as a church are called to catechize them and instruct them in the faith and particularly in the requirements that are needed to come to the table in a worthy manner. And when they make profession of faith, when they're at a, a certain level of, of, of discernment and maturity, then we welcome them through profession of faith to the table. And that's a wonderful moment uh, of them coming fully into the life of this church. And so... Um, Next week, we will consider a little bit more about what the catechism means when it refers to the keys of the kingdom. Again, that's part of the reason why we believe that elders have the authority to oversee and supervise this table is because Christ gave them the keys of the kingdom, which open and close 
uh, this kingdom through the law and the gospel. So let us pray.